This week, in our continuation of experimenting with different formats for this podcast, we are going to do a book report. Uh, Drew and I both read the book Small Giants, and we're going to have a discussion about kind of what our takeaways were, what we agreed with, what we disagreed with, and so on. All right, let's go. All right. Hey, Drew, what's going on? Uh, nothing much. It's been a few weeks uh, since we've caught up and continued the experiment uh, with formats. So looking forward to our update. Uh, went to Founder Summit uh, in Mexico City a few weeks ago at like a birthday weekend uh, to turn 31. Uh, so that was fun. And uh, yeah, happy to be here now. Cool. All right. Well, happy birthday. I'm curious to hear about Founder Summit because I, for people who don't know, Founder Summit is a uh, kind of... Co- startup conference hosted by mostly Calm Capital Company. And then Founder Summit is a separate organization, I guess, that's like not technically the same as Calm Company, but they're highly affiliated with one another. So I thought about going and didn't just because I'm trying to cut down on traveling for now. But like, how was it? Yeah, it was great. It would have been great to see you. Uh, And yeah, that's my understanding as well, where uh, Founder Summit came from... uh, why am I blanking on this name? For some reason, Kevin's name comes to me, SureSwift Capital. So it's in yeah. collaboration with SureSwift Capital and then Tyler uh, from Calm Capital. Uh, so they threw it first uh, in 2020, in March of 2020. So we know what happened there. And I was probably um, like one of 12 people that went to what we deem as like Founder Summit V0, uh, which a little bit of context, I landed and I was in the Uber on the way to like a bar as like a pre-opening ceremony for Founder Summit V0 and found out via DM uh, that it was called off uh, because of COVID. But we still self-organized and had a great time, a lot of uncertainty. And I think that brought us closer together, the fact that we sort of went through the fire together, the folks that came out. So uh, that's context for this year. This year, it was more organized, uh, more people. And when I say organized, I don't necessarily mean that in a like good way. I think what makes Founder <laughs> Summit stand out is that uh, it's sort of like the unconference. They try to focus more on experiences, one-to-one interactions, few-to-few interactions. And I think that's what makes it special. Uh, so we had a good mix of that, I would say, maybe 70, 30, uh, 60, 40 of those interactions experiences to like butts in the seats and one-way communication or like the typical talks or panels. Uh, and personally, I wish they would lean into that more. Like that that's what makes Founder Summit special in my mind is the unconferenced nature of it. Uh, but yeah, all in all, it was great to like see people from the year before. Uh, and I do understand that since it was a lot bigger, maybe there were like 30 people at Founder Summit V0. And now we had like north of 100. So just sort of like yeah, an organization, need more structure. Yeah, yeah, that seems accurate. So I uh, didn't get to meet everyone, didn't get to meet half the people. And I think you have to sort of approach uh, organizing differently when you're dealing with a bigger group. So I understand that. Uh, But perhaps that's just a trade-off of size and intimacy. Yeah. I've thought about, I mean, you run a community as your, your business. And I think this is a challenge with any type of community type of project where the bigger it gets, the harder it is to have that like really tight knit feel to it. And I, I don't envy anyone running a conference that goes well because like, what do you do? Do you like next year? Because it sounds like everyone loved it. Next year, do they let in 500 or 1,000 people? But that might ruin it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how much of this to share. I guess it's it's nothing like private, but uh, at the like closing soiree, uh, we were talking to Tyler and he was talking about next year being more ambitious. And I'm, there are different ways to be ambitious, which sorts of lead, leads into our book discussion. Yeah. Of, like, what are you optimizing for, right? Ambition could mean size. 
Uh, it can mean experience, quality. It could be a mixture of these things. We don't know how they're prioritizing this stack. Uh, but yeah, all in all, uh, it was amazing. Got to spend more time with people like Mark from Builder and a lot of people. Uh, he was supposed to come last year, didn't make it, but also a lot of people uh, that made it last year. So it was amazing. Yeah, great. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, maybe we can roll right into our main discussion for today, which, um, so again, for anyone who's listened to the first, what, this is our third episode, so the first two, mm -hmm. um, we're just experimenting with formats here. And so we're going, we both read the book, Small Giants, and we're just going to spend the rest of this episode talking about it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. And I can kick us off, like, we just talked about uh, what does ambition <clears throat> mean, and I said in my mind, it's related to the book Small Giants because one takeaway for me was that uh, these were founders, entrepreneurs that weren't just optimizing for like financial outcomes. And they had the freedom to do that since these weren't public companies and they didn't have a fiduciary duty to stockholders so they could optimize for community, health, relationships, whatever they wanted to. Um, mm -hmm. And that was at least one takeaway from my end. Did you have any like high level thoughts? Well, yeah, let, let's maybe start with a just high level for people who've never even heard of the book before. Because yeah. I was surprised. This book, it's as if it was written for me. And uh, one of my newsletter readers recommended it. But otherwise, like I had never heard of it until pretty recently. So it's called Small Giants. And the tagline, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's companies that choose to be great instead of big. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it, and they what is it like six or 10 companies that they kind of do case studies on where they say, here's a company that did great stuff, but a lot of them are, I'd say, 20 to 100 employees. A couple of them are more like 1,000, but pretty pretty small companies in the grand scheme of things that specifically made the decision not to get bigger than, than they were. Like They had the opportunity, investors approached them or whatever. There was a moment in time where they said, nope, we're, we're going to choose to stay our current size. Does that sound about right to you? Yep, sounds right. And I think there are different ways you could take the idea of a small giant like for some reason, what could also make sense, and this is what the, this is not what the author meant, but thinking about like WhatsApp or Instagram, where they were around twenty people before they got acquired for a billion dollars, like you could take it for leverage. Uh, but mm -hmm. I think what you what you said summarized it well. Cool. So yeah, you're asking about takeaways, and you, you kind of already shared one of them. That you know, the kind of point about ambitious and uh, ambition and stuff. I've got a lot here, so maybe I'll just start <laughs> at the top, and we can yeah. talk about them. Um, so yeah, one thing, like my feeling reading the book, like I said, it felt like it was written for me. And in particular, like at Less Knowing CRM, because we've made a lot of decisions that aren't like all the business advice out there, if you, if you go get an MBA or if you read the Wall Street Journal or other business books, it's all like, how do you maximize shareholder value? There's just like this assumption that that's what everyone's goal is. And if you're not doing that, you face a lot of decisions and a lot of problems and challenges that you don't know the answer. Like It's not like you read the answer already in a book. And so I've personally solved a lot of these for myself and for Less Annoying. And I just thought, it never occurred to me, oh, there are like thousands of other businesses out there going through the same stuff. And like every single chapter of this book, I was just like, wow, like I thought we were the only one. Not that I thought we were the only ones, of course we're not, but like it didn't occur to me how common these exact same problems must be. Yeah. And like, yeah, yeah I don't know what my point is, but I guess like community here, is something I should have been seeking out that I wasn't. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of people who talk about uh, the fact that like VCs have a financial incentive to like push stories on TechCrunch and make 
you know, younger generations or everyone feel like this is the only way. This is a startup and there is no other way to do a startup. Uh, and bootstrappers may not have a PR team. And in a similar way of you saying like this message hasn't gotten out a lot, it comes back to like incentives of these people would probably be happy to go about their business. But it does need a PR team or a PR effort uh, to spread this message wider. And it's also yeah, more like common, right? The, the the small giant method is more common, yeah, you're yeah. saying? Yeah, I'm saying this method of like bootstrapping small giants mm -hmm. is like the the meme of the pie of like, hey, these this 0.01% are of the companies, uh, they get VC financing or qualify or need VC financing. The rest of the pie uh, falls into a different category. Yeah. Yeah. Although I kind of feel like small, the, the book focuses on the group of businesses that could like, I think a lot of small businesses either never have the opportunity or it never occurs to them that scale is a thing. Like you open up a coffee shop on the corner and you're just like, I want this to survive. You know, you're not thinking I'm going to be the next Starbucks <clears throat> most of the time. And I do think there's, I think Founder Summit actually is probably overlaps really well with this small giant group where it's like businesses that are thinking scale in the way that a VC backed company is like, they know how to build scalable products and how to like, they know there's billions of dollars out there, but maybe you're optimizing for something else. Yeah, it's like a Venn diagram, the way I understand it, where he talked a lot about uh, control, where you may not retain control if you're the manager of a public company or you're leading a public company. Uh, I think that's something that it has in common with the companies that are most companies that went to Founder Summit. Uh, but I was surprised by like a lot of these companies and stories that were featured in the book. They weren't necessarily like high leverage businesses. They may have had like mm. high overhead and relative to like revenue per employee. Uh, it wouldn't be anything remarkable. Um, but I think what not what made them stand out, because a lot of companies that went to Founder Summit would also have this in common with those companies, is that they were optimizing for more than financial outcomes. And you have the freedom to do that, where, again, I don't understand uh, fiduciary duty like through and through, but if you're leaving money on the table, like you're legally obligated not to do that if you're leading a public company, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah or I, I, I've heard that it's a little more nuanced than like a lot of people say it that way. Like you have to maximize shareholder value or else you're betraying your shareholders. I think it's a little more complicated than that. But yeah, your yeah, shareholders are not going to be pleased. Of, yeah. We live in the world of like expected value. So who's to say like what's leaving money on the table? Like everything's probabilistic. Yeah. But yeah. So that was one of the points that I kind of wrote down here is just I the book was so my whole professional career I've been very anti venture capital um because the first job I had out of college I worked at a VC backed startup and I saw it basically ruin the company um I was surprised how strong of a stance the book took that it basically said you can't be a small giant if you raise like some of these companies raised a little bit but the book was pretty definitive that like that is at odds with the small giant thing did did you have any, like, what, what do you think about it? I don't, I don't really know where you stand on raising money in general. Yeah, I came at it from, arrived at the same destination as you, but came from a different direction where I felt like I just in general, like don't like permissioned environments or gatekeepers. And I felt like I was like facing headwinds trying to chase like that traditional path. So right or wrong, it was like, let me find out a different game. Uh, this game is cooler, whether it's true or I convince myself that that's true. I mm -hmm. decided to play that game because I didn't necessarily want to like face gatekeepers, but we arrived yeah. at the same destination. Yeah. Yeah. And so just to like, I'm kind of looking at my notes that I took while I was listening to the book. Um, 
One point they make is that this also means growth, like growing really fast generally can't be a part of a small giant because growth requires capital. For most businesses, this isn't true for every business, but growth requires capital. And as soon as you go out and raise that capital, that's the moment that you lose control. Even if you still have like voting share, like, you know, voting control or whatever, you have these investors that you have to represent. So it was kind of like, if even if you want to get big, doing it slowly is a whole different thing from doing it really fast, I think. Yeah. And, and then the other point, me, oh, sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, I was going to say, it also makes me think about expectations where a lot of people will say like, oh, it's just like a seed investment. You retain 60, 70%, however much majority uh, control, but we act as if like expectations don't carry weight. Uh, you have to grow into this valuation. Uh, you're having these conversations with investors and the idea that those conversations won't nudge you uh, to, you know, optimize for growth at the expense of something else, I think is crazy because it, in yeah. reality, it does have an impact. Well, and also kind of capital is addictive, um, where I think Uber is a great example of this, where the founder of Uber still had control over the company and his investors still managed to force him out because they basically said, we're going to make sure you never raise another dollar if you don't resign. Mm -hmm. And if you're dependent on that outside capital, yeah, even if you still technically control the voting shares, you know, your investors can, they have a lot of leverage on you. Yeah. Something that I said that resonated with the uh, group at Founder Summit was when we were talking about like writing and community. And I mentioned that the persona for Trends Pro members are like those who prefer freedom over glory. And for some reason that stuck out to people. But hmm. I take a similar uh, route here where it's just like, yeah, you know, you may not be on the cover of Fast Company or TechCrunch or whatever, uh, but you have that that control that perhaps uh, some of these uh, startup or companies or unicorns don't have. Something else that stood out from Founder Summit, I forgot, maybe it was during uh, Sahil's and Sahil and Natalie's talk, where one of them uh, said, just as an aside, that you just talked about control, but financially. Uh, sometimes bootstrappers can come out better financially than people that are building uh, like these billion dollar companies just because of how things are structured. Uh, so it's just not a given there that yeah. you give up control and that financial outcome. Definitely. Um, and then my, the last point on kind of the raising the money that I wrote down here is just the book points out that a lot of the small giants have some sort of cause backing them, like not just for the founders, but that the employees get behind, like something to kind of connect everyone together beyond just like, let's make a lot of money. And that you already said this basically, but that it's irresponsible to do anything like that if you have shareholders. So that was, that was the, the real point the book was making about not like try, trying not to raise money. I'm curious for you, like you're talking about freedom and stuff like this. Is this mostly freedom just to live your life and not let the business control your life? Or is it like the freedom to do something with the business that isn't about making money? It's both where I think about, I just think about a lot of decisions we make, especially people who like founders who have a lot of optionality. Like before this, I was a big data engineer, could have continued down that path, would have probably been retired before I am now. But we make a lot of these decisions, not because they're rational decisions or logical. We even talked about this on like at a bookstore at a founder summit, just a side conversation that a lot of us are crazy in terms of the certainty that we sacrifice for control or that freedom of you want to do it your way. Uh, and it's not actually about finances. So I think it's not control in all senses of the word, but control in most senses uh, of the word. I was just had a report review with uh, Miles Beckler a few hours ago, 
And he was talking about like how he tries to structure his life financially. He's like, okay, my expenses, my burn rate is so low that if I wanted to, I could go work as a marketer somewhere. He's like, I would never do that. And that's the type of mindset that we're talking about of people that Mm -hmm. just can't see themselves yielding that control. What's interesting to me is a lot of the people from this book, and this is true for me too, gave themselves a pretty standard nine to five job without, like, I don't control my life the way you do. You know, you're doing the digital nomad thing. And I mean, it sounds like you basically have worked really hard not to have any constraints imposed on you. I have a lot that I imposed on myself in the form of like, yeah, like the more employees you have, for example, you you owe an obligation to them. And we've decided to be in person, which means I have to be in person too. And a lot of the the companies that Small Giants talks about, they they have they they chose to do it, but they still ended up with like probably day to day not that dissimilar of a job from if they went nine to five with some other company. But I guess my point is like the freedom I feel is to like really really go after goals that I probably couldn't if I worked at a different company. It's not that my yeah. life is all that different; it's that I can you know work towards something else when I'm working. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I will also add that in a lot of ways, I feel like you're freer than I am at the stage that less annoying CRM is at where you just tend to have like you've delegated like enough of these discrete tasks where if you look at my day to day, it very much looks like a generalist schedule. I'm trying to work away from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, just more perspective. For it's a trade off because you, you yeah. delegate and then now your job is to be a manager, which is a different type of lack of freedom. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, yeah. um, Hopefully there's a way to like break the laws of physics here where I think about that a lot. Like we had a check in this morning uh, and someone mentioned uh, like they would like to see more collaboration. And I pushed back a little bit uh, because I didn't want there to be this idea that like collaboration has to be synchronous. Like there could be non-blocking asynchronous collaboration. But again, trying to break physics a little bit. Uh, where yeah. we don't necessarily have these showstoppers, but yeah, back to small. I do think this is part of why, like, I have, I, I don't really have an interest in getting acquired, but the appealing thing about it—that's the ultimate freedom, right? Is now I have millions of dollars and no job, <laughs> and I think that is why a lot of founders end up going that route. Yeah, not to make this into a report review. This is the only question I would ask that's related to this, and I've been asking this and thinking about this all day where the next report is on the fire movement, financial independence, retire early. And I think one risk is what you just said, that we haven't seriously thought about what it what life would look like, like without this purpose, without this constraint, without this stress uh, mm-hmm. that keeps us going. So uh, I think this first came on my radar. A book I'm reading right now uh, is about a chess grandmaster. He reached that goal in his 20s and then didn't know what to do with himself because for his whole life, pretty much his entire life, like that was his goal. Uh, So I think that's also worth thinking about if you sell your company or if you have like fire or early retirement as a, uh, as a thought. Yeah. You've kicked Agreed. Off That's why I'm the, not interested in it. But yeah. anyway, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to, cause you've been uh, leading us through a few yeah. uh, bullet points and I don't have as many as you, but I have a couple here. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> this next one is uh, for some reason, like this idea of like a triple bottom line kept coming back to me through reading this book. And I think I first came across that idea while doing the uh, report on B Corps, where in triple bottom line, like what people usually mean is like uh, social impact, environmental, v- environmental impact and financial impact. 
And we just we keep comparing like this to public companies, this to public companies, uh, where, of course, like Coke probably does things for uh, Habitat for Humanity, like these general causes. Uh, but you can probably afford to be more spiky uh, if you have more control of the com- over the company. Or if it's just a smaller group, I noticed that like smaller groups tend to have stronger opinions. And you don't necessarily get diluted in terms of the causes that you support as a whole. Yeah, this is something I've I don't want to say struggled with with less annoying serum because it hasn't been a struggle. But like every time we oftentimes we have ideas that are like, what can we do to make this more appealing to more people, whether that's employees or customers or whatever. And every time we do that, we're like, well, yeah, but that that defeats the purpose. Right. Like there's a certain type of thing that can only you can only do great things if everyone's on the same page about it. And if you're like, well, we want to make the company a really great place to work for people who don't share that vision. It's like, well, that's like an interesting type of inclusion. But yeah, I don't think that's what we're trying to do here. You know, absolutely. That was extremely vague. (laughs) Maybe because like I came in with context and I have my own stories that I can like attach uh, to this idea. But it's something I talked to uh, Bilal from Creator Lab about where it's just like it doesn't only apply to like the, the size of one group, be it employees. It could also apply to the type of stakeholders that you have. Like if you had investors and sponsors and uh, like paid subscribers and employees and hell, I don't know if there was like regulatory risk and you had to like satisfy regulators. You're not going to make all of these people at this table happy and you end mm-hmm. up playing this give and take game and you just end up with this like diluted, you know, mess of an opti- optimization problem. Uh, so that's why, which you uh, sort of talked about how this idea of philosophy of small giants has impacted you at Less Annoying CRM, but a big way it's impacted Trends VC is through like us not doing sponsorships of we could probably double revenue overnight if we said, hey, we're going to accept these sponsorship requests that are coming in. But the question which I still don't have an answer to and may never have an answer to is like, who are we working for at that point? And it seems like benign if like, oh, like you just take, you know, the money and blah, blah, blah. But it's just like, okay, then we start to like pick topics, not on what's most helpful or perceived to be uh, the most helpful for Trends Pro members, but what may may get the most opens and the most new subscribers. And it's like you run into all of these questions and problems that don't exist when you just like, hey, like there's not a seat for you, you know? So Yeah. I love it. Not that we always take that position, but that's just an example of leaving money on the table, which if I had investors, even if I maintained majority control, those conversations would be harder to have. And I would frankly get tired of having those conversations with investors if they had a seat at the table. And I think there's a strong argument to be made that what you're doing maybe does maximize revenue or profit or whatever Mm -hmm. over long enough of a time period. Um, Even if that's not your goal, this comes up a lot where now that Lesson Wing Serum is 12 years old, there are a lot of like really, really strong foundational things about the company that wouldn't be true if we had taken the shortcut 10 years ago and tried to make a little more money. And, you know, raising prices is another one of these. I'm, you know, char- charge what you need to charge. I'm, I'm not saying you should sort short sell yourself, but like we've got a decade of trust built up with customers that we wouldn't have if we were like intercom and we we're like, we're going to charge one penny less than the value we're providing you, you know? So Mm -hmm. I I think a lot of the small giant stuff actually does result in more money eventually. Uh, I'm going to steal that because (laughs) as part of our weekly check-in, I do these scorecards and it's like some light accounting there. And I'm always going through like accounting records and I'm like, 
Yeah, it feels like some companies do charge you like one penny less than the value they provide. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Whereas others, it's just like, okay, there's so much meat on the bone or like you're providing 10x like what you actually charge. Maybe there's a happy medium, but I know that that inner car struggle, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay, tying back to the like, you don't have to be everything to everyone thing. There, there was one point that I'm especially interested in your thought on because mm-hmm. I think it was in our first episode, we talked a little bit about the remote work thing. And because you're you're very pro remote, and I'm I'm also like pro remote conceptually, but Less Annoying CRM is not a remote company. One of the things that Small Giants, the book says, all of these companies have in common is that they all are really connected to their local community. And the book was, I think, the first version of the book came out in the early 2000s, so remote work wasn't a big thing at the time. So I do think it's a little dated in that sense. So it's not like these companies were thinking about going remote, but what they were thinking about doing is expanding to other cities. And the book kind of says pretty much all of them made the decision that their their one local community is super important. They had like offices that were in really prominent places. They worked with charities, whatever it was, there was a local element. And I think part of that is what we were just talking about, that it connects the whole team behind a cause that's not just making money. Mm-hmm. What do you think the remote version, like if they wrote the book today about remote companies, what? how do you replace that sense of belonging? I have a friend that works at Twitter. It's actually the friend that came to Puerto Vallarta for my birthday. And he talked about a, uh, it's like a volunteer project that uh, I think Twitter has a headquarters in Atlanta, but him and they have headquarters like all around uh, the States and probably the world. Cause I think they have one in like Sao Paulo as well. But anyways, focusing on Atlanta, uh, he met some of his empl- uh, coworkers for the first time at that volunteer project. Like that's one idea And there's this other much wilder argument where we've talked about NFTs before, but I think one could also make the argument that like Web3 or this open world like is a community unto itself. And if you're not remote, that's something that you could probably contribute to, uh, whether it's like Web3 education. I don't want to get political and talk (laughs) like geopolitics, but I could go in that direction (laughs) right now. So I'll just stop there. Um, But yeah. Let me go down a little rabbit hole here, which is like, I've heard an argument, which I find compelling, which is that technology and culture have dramatically outpaced like physical, biological evolution. And that even though our technology and all that really does enable virtual relationships, maybe not everybody, but most people still kind of have this like old caveman type brain that's like, there is something different to in-person. As someone who's a big remote proponent, do you, like you just said, you're your friend met coworkers at an in-person event. Like, do you still think, even if you're fully remote, in-person is like a pretty critical part of the relationship? Yeah, it's just higher fidelity. That's the way I describe it. Like if I met you at Founder Summit or if I came to St. Louis, like I'm not looking at a two, three, 2D Tyler. Like I'm looking at mm-hmm. a 3D Tyler <laughs> and I'm picking up like way more information. Uh, and it just makes a world of difference. Again, people meeting people at Founder Summit that I've known, we've been internet friends for two years, some two and a half years, uh, and meeting them in person, it was different. Like we are closer as a result of that. Uh, and yeah, we just didn't have that before. And of course, I don't know if we collaborated on the remote, uh, work report, but it's not, I don't think either one is better. They're just different, right. Different and better at different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think if Like, I was shocked at how huge of a point in the book location was. Mm. Uh, 
they mentioned it, you know, when you're you're going linearly through the book, they mentioned it as like, oh, interesting, it was an offhand thing, but there was like basically a full chapter devoted to this. Do you think if they wrote the book 10 years from now, that would still be true? Yeah, I'm going to go go with what everyone is probably thinking right now. And I don't think that would be true 10 years in the future. Uh, <laughs> I think that's like a pretty safe bet. I would also say that uh, I like the way you notice these like mega themes in the book that I only see in retrospect where you mentioned like their comments about VC or like how they would sort of shine light on VC, the location theme. I didn't no- notice that uh, either, but yeah. Cool. Um, all right. Next up, you want to you want to take a topic or should I keep going? Yeah, this may be my last one because I also have like a note on the book itself. Uh, but we are more so talking about the concepts than like the format or the uh, like organization of the book. But I thought about this on our call, uh, maybe one of the first things you said. Uh, and it started it made me think about marketplaces where you could choose to be like a or remain to be a vertical. You could stay a vertical marketplace. This is usually how marketplaces start of Amazon started with books. I compare Mm -hmm. social networks to marketplaces. Uh, Facebook started at Harvard. eBay started Beanie Babies, whatever the hell they did. They started vertically. And then investors, whatever that stimulus is, encourages you to go wider and expand the more categories. But you end up serving each vertical less and less because you have to be more of a general purpose app or marketplace. And that opens up the window for someone else to come in and like serve that vertical better. So we could look at StockX, the stock market for everything, secondary sales of shoes, jerseys, purses, everything. But you also have Chrono 24 say, hey, we're just going to focus on watches. And the founder or CEO or both of StockX said in an interview, he was like, okay, someone recently came to us and was like, we need to filter on watches, you know, for this attribute. And it was like, we're not going to provide that. Go to Chrono 24. But that's the opportunity that you present. And if you are vertical or specialized and you open up and decide to be more general, you op- it's just like an endless cycle where you give that position up and perhaps you give that position up, even if you try to stay vertical uh, and maybe just like stasis gets you or someone else leapfrog, leapfrog you, leap, however you say that <laughs> word. But the bigger point is just that this whole thing is cyclical. And that's, that's yeah. what came to mind. You try to go wider and you leave someone room to come eat your lunch in at least one category. I wonder how much technology in the internet like messes this up because one of the ways to niche back in the day was localization. Like, mm-hmm. you know, who cares that there's some giant company in New York? I'm in St. Louis and we're not really competing head to head. And now that's not really true where I would wonder, I, I would worry if I were a marketplace for say watches, not that. Well, watches is not the best example for what I'm about Let's to say. Uber, Something that they actually chose location, San Francisco. They didn't try to boil the mm. ocean. They just said we started in San Francisco. Yeah, that's a great point. But so then if you were starting a competitor to Uber in Chicago, you're out of business right now because Uber took over, which probably wouldn't have happened. At least it wouldn't have happened in like such a short amount of time in this, I don't know, 70s or whatever, like before mm-hmm. technology was such an, so influential. And I kind of... I worry about the future of like niching down on stuff, given how quickly there can be scale. Because so back to the back to the Amazon example, I buy stuff on Amazon that Amazon's not great at selling because of all the economies of scale. Because I'm like, I know I've got my shipping information entered. I know like I've I've got an Amazon credit card and I get better rewards there. I, I do worry that it's harder and harder to compete in that type of environment. But but then there are other businesses that aren't like that. I. I don't have a good mental model here, but like for what things 
do the economies of scale crush the specialists and what things do they not? Yeah, I think it may always, and I don't say always in an absolute sense, but just a practical sense, maybe a mix of things, because you made a great point about Amazon where if you have a better buying experience here, but you sort of have these like sunk cost effects or, you know, they have your card, they have your shipping address, you know, you don't have to face that friction. It's not a new tool for you. You've used it before. So you have the habits built up. That's the one advantage they have. And that's a higher hurdle that, uh, if this is Amazon, what's another like river or forest? Uh, Nile, this, this, <laughs> this other competitor has to overcome in terms of that experience because they don't have the network effects. They don't have your card information. Uh, and to make another like lateral jump, I think about uh, back to like the writing panel uh, at Founder Summit where Tyler had a question of like, what's 10X writing? And a lot of us came to the, to the conclusion that 10X writing doesn't necessarily have to be like 10X better. It could be you know, no code for single dads. This is ridiculous, but it's, <laughs> you're taking these two things and this is like an underserved market or underserved niche. And you're making this other thing accessible to that group. So it's 10 X to that group. It's not 10 X to everyone. It's just yeah. better for this persona. Right. Uh, so maybe that's a way uh, as well that they could like just position themselves differently, but network effects are network effects, man. Winner take most. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm the main takeaway for me from that discussion is like Uber, but in Chicago is not differentiated from Uber. It's just in a different city. Unless they were at like a similar stage to Uber. Like if they started now, absolutely not. But well, yeah, slug it out. Yeah, slug it out. But even then your your business models, maybe you start niche, but your business model Mm -hmm. is we have to one of, uh, you know, the famous quote, I think it was from the CEO of Netflix saying we have to become HBO before HBO becomes us. Mm -hmm. Like that's one model is either we eat them or they eat us. But if they differentiate on something totally different, like we're Uber, but for kids coming home from school, which has a whole different set of things, uh, a whole different set of concerns, potentially, Uber's never really going to compete head on head to head with that potentially. So yeah, anyway. Yeah, yep. And okay. you, you'll have to lead with your points from now on, because I just have like, again, <laughs> more of a critique of the book itself and less about the topics or ideas, but I'm ready All to right. jam. So maybe we'll save the critique for the end, you think? We can. Yeah. All right. Um, so yeah, one thing that it said, I don't, I don't really have much to say about this. I just thought it was a point that for anyone listening, who's not going to read the book, one of the main points is small giants have mojo. He uses the word mojo a lot in the book. And it's just saying like, there's something, it's a, every small company is not a small giant. And it even said there are some big companies that kind of manage to keep this mojo, but that's the defining characteristic is it's just like, it's a personality. It's a culture. I, I don't know. How would you describe what they mean when they talk about Mojo? That's a part that uh, not caused me pause, but I really I, I didn't grasp like what he meant in that. Like I understood what he was trying to say. But it just felt so nebulous, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We can maybe tie it to what you and I were talking about earlier of like. Not like not trying to please everybody sort of, of just saying you're about something. Something that stood out to me when I was reading that back in the day at Lesson Wing CRM, I wrote all the copy and I knew all the customers and my voice was in the copy. Like there were jokes all over, even though it's a like a boring SaaS app and there just aren't anymore. The only page that's still like that is if you go cancel your account, it's over the top. It's not even a good joke. I just like have a little like, I'll be listening to I Will I Always Love You by Whitney Houston crying in my bedroom. That Just some stupid throwaway thing that I wrote in like 2009. 
That's yeah. the only thing that has survived. And when I read <laughs> that thing about Mojo, I was like, did some of the Mojo die? Even if it was stupid, like some of our mm-hmm. personalities gone, I think, you know? Oh man. Okay. Now you're making me thinking about, think about something because this week we'll post a uh, opening for uh, trends VC analysts. And these are other people to write reports. And it's like, there's a certain like editorial style and voice that these have had the whole time. And what made me comfortable, I love to get your uh, thoughts on this idea, but what made me comfortable with opening up the search uh, to get other people uh, to possibly write reports was that I could still be an editor the same way that a Sono from like A16Z is like an editor in chief for A16Z, like content across the board. And maybe I'm fooling myself, but the hope was that I could protect that voice and like keep that Mm. consistent. Uh, I don't know if like an opportunity like that presents itself here. Like, do you feel like if you're stepping on toes, if you try to like work with uh, like, I don't know, like the organizational structure of less annoying CRM, but if you tried to work with writers, people that were writing email copy, did you, would you feel like you're stepping on toes if you tried to, you know, create like a resurgence? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Regardless of whether it's true for me or not, I think that's the concern. Like, yeah. Everyone knows like good management is you got to empower people. And if if you're just like, you, everything you do has to be the same way I would do it. That's, there might be a certain type of employee who loves that, who likes being kind of micromanaged like that. But the real star performers, I think, are going to feel constrained by that. Yeah. Which that is takes us to another point, uh, not to stall out here for too long, but uh, another sort of supplement was like a style guide. Uh, and we'll have one for reports. We'll also have one for copy. But I wonder if there's a space to say like, this is how we do it here. And not only are you filtering Mm. that uh, like once people have already joined, but before they join, like, you know, you're looking at the person you're looking at, like in this case, it wouldn't be a style guy, but like, this is how we work. And it's clearly not for everyone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I definitely, yeah. At at some point, if you keep growing, you have to scale this stuff. So I think you've got to do that. I like the idea of an editor. We just um, hired a kind of contractor that potentially will would become full-time eventually a designer. And so our first designer, like I've been doing all the design and I'm talking about like product UX design more than like graphic design. Um, and this is the role I've thought of myself in for that. Cause like, I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want the app to feel like it was designed by a bunch of different people. I want it to feel mm-hmm. like, you know, if you like it, how it is now, you're going to like all the stuff she comes up with too. And being the editor, I think is right. So yeah, I, I think it's gotta be possible. Another approach, though, that comes to mind for me, I'm, I assume you follow um, the other trends, uh, the hustle, right? Mm-hmm. They have done an interesting thing where they empower each writer to have their own voice, and then the audience can follow the ones they like, which I think is kind of interesting. You, you, or yeah, maybe I'm, I'm misinterpreting. Familiar, yeah, I'm not that familiar with their model uh, where you can sort of okay. like subscribe to certain voices, it sounds like. I I don't know about the subscription thing, but like, so I follow a few of their writers on Twitter and they are not trying to mimic Sam Parr's voice at all. Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, this person does really deep dives into how specific companies work. And this person just shit posts about business and this other person does videos, but it's like their voice is in everything they write. Um, I'm not saying that's, I wonder if that's better for keeping Mojo is to let people like, is it better to have one common voice coming from the company or is it better? To, but, but then it's kind of like elevator music. It's like averaging everyone together, sort of. Or is it better to have different voices, so less consistency, but each voice has more personality, I wonder? Probably the latter, but I would also say that uh, there's, there's still some unifying theme there. And I'm not sure like what it is for the hustle, 
or what it would be for these other companies. But there's some like not common barrier or bar to hit where in the past, like I've heard Sam talk about like people who can like spot interesting things or know how to tell a story, right? Like maybe that's the bar that people Mm -hmm. have to cover. Uh, unless so about like style or a voice, but maybe it's a skill or something else that you're filtering for. This ties to a lot of, you said a style guide and I think that makes sense. But if not after having this conversation, if I were writing the style guide, I think it would be more about like core values and pillars than it would be about like, here's how you punctuate uh, a bullet point. Do you put a period at the end of it or whatever? Um, just being like, we all have to be on the same page about these pretty small set of things. And then beyond that, use your own voice. Yeah. Uh, there's a book. I didn't finish reading it, but it comes from the like copy editor of Buzzfeed where they have like a pretty lengthy uh, book. This is called. Okay. We can put it in show notes. I'll find it later, <laughs> but it comes from like right. the copy editor uh, of Buzzfeed where they, it's, they do go down to like the, the, um, like punctuation level. I don't think like, I think this is all iterative. Like we'll figure it out. Yeah. Uh, and they're like big pieces of this role that aren't figured out, but I think it could help to have a style guide. And I think uh, at least for my own comfort, it helped to like understand that like there will be an editor uh, and there will be like a feedback loop there. Uh, and for <laughs> us, I think something that does like, there are certain like pillar pieces that if like trends VC was what it was until like report 75 or 76. And then all of a sudden, like we're publishing 10,000 word essays. I don't think that's going to fly. I think the like risky bet was that like people prefer like more concise, high signal content and that bet paid off. So like, if you can't be concise, that might be a problem, you know? Yeah. I a hundred percent buy that. I'll just closing thought here. No one's going to be as good at doing what you do as you are. So if you want to maintain quality, they have to be better at something else. And if you shut that down, then you get worse quality. Noted. But the concise thing, I totally agree with. Like, yeah, that's that's non-negotiable for what you're doing, because that's why we all signed up. Yeah. I like that. Cool. Um, next topic here. Uh, it talks, the book dives quite a bit into succession planning, which is something that I have sort of started thinking about. Like, how do you, so one thing that a lot of these small giants have in common is founder control, right? Because almost by definition, if you're not raising money, when you raise money, it almost forces the organization to be more distributed in terms of uh, governance and, you know, any one person gets hit by a bus, not a big deal. Whereas small giants types companies tend to be a lot more founder centered. So what do you do when the founder wants to retire or something like that? And the book kind of dives into all these challenges with it, where the founders are like, well, I want to give control to employees, but there's all these tax implications. If I give money to them, or if I give stock to them, they have to pay taxes on the value of the business, which they don't have the money for. And there's like, to, I don't know, one of the things going on in my head that whole time was like the the value of a democracy versus a dictatorship, sort of. Like, mm-hmm. does the is the mojo thing even harder if if it becomes like a true democracy where you know each employee is just voting on everything? It's a tricky challenge, I think. Yeah, Derek Sivers, Derek Sivers comes to mind here where uh, he talks about a employee profit sharing plan and he like gave the employees the right to like decide how much of the profits they would take and they took all of it and then he sold the <laughs> company. <laughs> so we had a discussion because uh, I think when, when there was a book club for Trends VC, like th- we covered uh, Anything You Want, which was a book by him. And uh, 
a reoccurring theme that like people kept talking about was like, you know, leadership is like delegation, but it's not like abdicate abdication. Like mm. where you just like say like, Hey, I'm going to throw this over the wall and you handle it. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know the internals of that story, like what went on with him. Um, but it, it feels like from the outside, looking at the story that he just sort of like threw his hands up and sold the company uh, after that. But yeah, that's something I think about a lot because I don't think that, uh, everyone necessarily like has earned an opinion. This is getting into like Ray Dalio principles, what he talks about in that book of not only like if we have a meeting of 12 people, like everyone gets to vote, but like who's most knowledgeable, like who's most qualified to vote, who's the most informed on this. And perhaps they should have like more weight in this decision as something that they optimize for a lot. Yeah. Something that I think is huge here is trust. Like if you're, if you're going to do the dictator model where one person can decide you still need to, you, the founder, owe it to the employees to listen to them, even if they don't have any like actual legal authority to force you to do anything. And that that comes down to trust. Do they trust you're actually going to listen? Um, yeah. And this, I was going to say yeah, this go may land or not, but going back to like the Ray Dalio example, where I think maybe he wasn't the first person that made me realize this, but like trust has many forms of like, do I trust your intentions? Versus do I trust your skills? Like those are very different yeah. things. Like I trust my mom's intention. I wouldn't trust her to do like heart <laughs> surgery on me. Right. Like there's a difference. Right. right. Yeah. Um, one thing that, so yeah, I had a few, okay. A few thoughts on the succession mm -hmm. planning thing. Like I don't, have you, you're, you're still new enough. I'm guessing you're not putting tremendous amount of thought into like, if you retire and you're still running trends VC or, or have you thought about that? This is a great, great segue back to like the analyst role of I spend the majority of my time writing reports, researching reports, having conversations with people about reports that I have like this crazy roadmap that I'm not able to execute on or mm -hmm. have limited ability to execute on uh, because of this. And I'm trying to open up uh, bandwidth to do more things like that. I sneak like some things in like working on a referral program, but that's maybe 10 or 15 percent of my time. I would love for that to invert in some ways. Yeah. yeah, I think that's pretty common that you, you go from being the main person doing everything. You're working in the business and then you want to work on the business. Mm -hmm. This part of the book to me was about that next step, which is like, now, what about when I can't work on the business? Like a, a lot of the yeah, 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 founders yeah, yeah. So are like 70 years old. Yeah. And our very simple, simplified model, if that's like step three, I'm trying to get to step two yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I can plan for step three. What about you? Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm not like fully to step two in the sense, like I still have a lot of individual contributor responsibilities, but most of the key stuff I'm, I'm in step two. So mm -hmm. I have started thinking about step three and yeah, like just a few things that have come to mind and that they kind of touch on a little bit in the book. Um, or maybe I'm just making, making up how I interpret it. Cause this was already on my mind. But so one is like, should a business be built to exist forever? Um, mm. And like, again, the analogy here to me is democracy versus monarchy or monarchies. I'm not like a political science expert, dictatorship, monarchy, authoritarian, whatever you want to call it. Like if you, if, if every country had to try to build a lot of high speed rail effectively, would I bet on the U S or China to do it better? China for sure. No question. China would build a rate. I mean, they already have, this is like not a hypothetical example, but any kind of big project like that right now, I'd trust China to do it better. Because they can just get the whole country behind something very quickly, very effectively, without a lot of bureaucracy. The U.S. would be worse at it. But I'd also rather live in the U.S. And I think that the U.S.'s form of government is likely to be around past when China's current regime ends. 
because I think democracy is more fair. It's more stable. Uh, but should a bit like it would be devastating for a country to stop existing. It wouldn't be devastating for a small giant to stop existing at some point. And I kind of wonder, is it maybe better to just embrace that companies don't exist forever? I think that's true. Uh, and I'm just going to speak off the cuff here. I think that's true, but I think it may be harmful to embrace that truth because, <laughs> be, well, let's start out like with the stronger argument. The stronger argument is that like, if you're, I don't, I don't think you're putting this forth like in what you're saying, uh, but I think it matters because of like compounding the benefits of compounding. You're not saying that like, Hey, you're not doing something that you can't do for 20 or 30 years. You're just saying that, look, this it's okay to think about or realize that this business may not exist after you're gone. Uh, and that's true. And that's historically true. Like name the number of companies that have been around for 100 years, 70 years, 50 years. Yeah. Not a lot. Not a lot. Uh, but is it helpful? Like it's, it's like if you want to go to the NBA, like you may not make it, but is it helpful to believe what I just told you? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's it becomes true. this like self-defeating narrative. So, yeah. So one of the ways I've thought about this is like, let's say I'm approaching retirement. I'm 60 years old or whatever. Is it better for the company to become, say, an employee co-op? Or is it better to do the monarch thing and say, I'm passing it down to my metaphorical son. Uh, I do not have kids. And if I did, I would not pass my ownership of the company to them. But like pick someone within the company and say, in the same way that I have had close to total control thus far, I think the company ha probably has more upside with one person in control. And the, the problem is, eventually you give it to the wrong person, mm -hmm. right? This is what happens in every government historically with a monarch is like the, the, the first ruler's kid is fine, but then that person's kid is terrible and, and it leads to the demise. But like, that's kind of what I'm getting at with embracing that it will end eventually is like, maybe it'll be better while it lasts if you go with the monarch approach. Yeah. And that's playing the scenario out until like you're ready to retire. What also, what tends to happen to like most bootstrap companies is they get acquired, like in the book, mm. you know, this didn't happen, but they get acquired before you reach that point. And as a small giant, is it okay to sell if you sell to the quote unquote right company? Like, what are your thoughts there? I think the uh, if you're as big as the companies in the book, like most of them are, they're small compared to publicly traded companies, but they're big enough, it would be a 50 million plus acquisition. I don't think there are a lot of those acquisitions coming from private companies, at which point you've got all the same problems that if you'd raised money yourself, um, which maybe is fine, right? Maybe it's like, yep, I'm cashing out, but it's not a small giant anymore at that point, I think. Got it. Got it. I don't know, I, does, does that mesh with you? What do you think? Yeah, I don't have any strong thoughts there. The only note that I was taking down while you were talking about that is this idea of merging cultures. And we're putting small giants on a pedestal, but I don't think it's, it's a non-zero chance that the culture that they're merging into may be better by whatever your standards of better is different. So there's a possibility that it may be better that they're trying mm -hmm. to merge into or step up to. But I don't have any strong thoughts in terms of whether this is still a uh, strong giant if they get acquired. Yeah. Yeah. So one other thought on the succession stuff, the big problem that they talk about is that when you give ownership of the company to someone, they have to pay a lot of taxes in it. So like, let's say I do what I just said, where I'm going to, when I'm 60, I'm going to pick a 30 year old at the company and just say, you're, you're God, like you're in charge of everything. There's still the challenge. If I just say, well, here's all my equity, uh, they then have to pay 
they, they would not be able to afford to pay, pay the taxes on it, basically. One strategy, I was a little disappointed the book did not point out an option, which is, what if you make the company worthless? And what I mean is worthless to shareholders, not that it has no value to customers or to employees, but what if you you could write into the, I, I, I'm not a lawyer, but I think you could write into the operating agreement just like enough poison pills that selling equity will never be a way to make money for anybody. At which point you could transfer, I mean, it sucks because like the, the original founder is losing a lot of potential value, but all these people are already rich. And again, the point of this is to not to, to maximize for something other than, um, you know, just shareholder value. I wonder if that's a valid strategy. Just make the company worthless. I'm about to take this to Web3. <laughs> so I, mean, I keep thinking about smart contracts where like not only can you, you know, enforce this like legally, but like in all this is reality, right? Like unless you can break the logic or somehow like break the logic in this contract, that's the logic of it. Uh, recommend this to you, to anyone who's listening. Uh, Michael Saylor had like a 12, probably at this point, like 19 uh, hour interview, a series of interviews on Bitcoin itself. But he talks about this idea where I would even say that not, not only cryptocurrencies, like any type of like encrypted asset has more security uh, than like real estate or a company or anything that like exists in our current system because laws could change. You try to like write this in blood and then 50 years from now, you know, some esoteric rule comes down that like, look, these things can be changed uh, or, you know, you lobby whoever you need to lobby to have that change and this thing becomes less true. I think it's just hard. Uh, it's hard, risky, which you already <laughs> accounted for when you talked about like you're removing optionality from yourself as well. And we don't know, you know, what the future holds. So this may yeah. be a good place to like, I guess, insert like sort of my high level thoughts of the book itself where. Yeah, go for it. It felt like, yeah, it could have been maybe like 10 percent of the length that it was like, I wish the stories were like tighter and maybe like more differentiated of like it, it, after like a few stories, it became clear where like every story was going. So like, you know, like either choose less little, stories before we pattern match. Yeah. Do you, do you know the book, the mom test, right? Mm -hmm. It's really short. Have you read, uh, what's the guy's name? Rob Fitzpatrick. Have you like read any interviews with him about like why it's so short? No, no. We spoke I, at like this orbit thing together, but he didn't talk about oh, it. Yeah, I was fascinated by this. So he said, apparently, so my my attitude, what you just said about the length of the book is true for every business book I've ever read. They're all mm -hmm. way too long. You, you could read the back cover and get 90% of the value out of the book. Um, mm -hmm. Apparently, publishers will not publish books that don't have thick spines because no one can see them in bookstores or at airport, you know, those magazine stores where a lot of book sales happen. Um Apparently, he could not get his book published because it was too short. And so he had to self-publish, which I thought was fascinating. Wow. wow. <laughs> and weirdly enough, that leads us back to small giants in terms of the stakeholder types of, you know, if that's a requirement for them, mm -hmm. now you've diluted your product. It's subpar mm -hmm. now and you've added fluff because you're trying to yep. satisfy the stakeholder. Yeah. Yeah. But I agree. Definitely. If anyone wants to read it. It is tough because there are some later chapters, like the succession planning thing was one of the later chapters, but like you could probably read the first three pages of each chapter and get get the point of the what they're getting at. Yeah, yeah. It became painful after a point of like, okay, if I wasn't doing this episode with Tyler, I probably wouldn't continue <laughs> <laughs> reading this book, but yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Cool. What else? Did you have other uh, takeaways? No, or that was, was it. That, that was one? it. I was saving. Cool. Yeah, I was saving that until the end. Cool. Yeah. Um, 
I have, let me just give one final one that I don't think there's a lot to talk about here, but this was one of my favorite points in it. Mm-hmm. And then this will be my last thing. Um, they give, a, I forget what, where in the, what the context is in the book, but they give a, a little fable or whatever, where a person is throwing, they're on the beach and they see a starfish, like a live starfish trying, like struggling because they're supposed to be in the water, but it's on the beach and they throw the starfish back in. And the person next to them says, what was the point of that? There are billions of starfish. Many of them are dying in the same way. What you just did does not matter. And the person's response is, it mattered to that one starfish. And that was used as justification for like what a small giant is about. Like, yeah, we're not in the way that Mark Zuckerberg talks about changing the world, whether whatever you think of him, he talks big. We're not going to do that. Um, but we can have a big impact on a small group of people. And I think just like mentally, that's such an important thing to be at peace with if you want to run this type of business. Yeah. And not to get too abstract, but like you can barbell this, right? Of you could have those like one-on-one impacts and then also focus on like systematic change. Uh, and I would argue that like effective systematic change often like starts with those one-on-one interactions. But yeah, as a small giant, you're not trying to boil the ocean just to go along with the story there. Uh, mm-hmm. and you are like comfortable, you know, wedging in and like having this impact at whatever like level or scale you're at. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, so overall, the book was too mm-hmm. long, You, but it's, I mean, I don't know. I liked it. What did like, w- would you recommend it to someone? Yeah. Like when we chose this book, like you put together like a short list and I chose one off of the list and I chose it because I've been talking about what I thought this concept meant in conversations over, I don't know how many years. So it's great to have read it because I can say I've read it. I reference it a lot without having read it. Uh, Mm -hmm. So just to have it like under the bridge, if you will, uh, that feels good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely glad we read this. Um, I forget who recommended it to me, but thank you if you're listening. Um, yeah, cool. Any other, anything else on your mind before we call it here? No, I think that's it. Uh, the experiments continue. We have our yep. book episode <laughs> down. Yeah, indeed. All right, cool. Well, I'll talk to you later. All right, later.